Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Those two verses, beginning Luke chapter 15, are not very positive verses, are they, from the standpoint of revealing an attitude that is anything but positive. But it was an attitude that the Lord Jesus Christ had to deal with regularly as he walked among men. There were those who were always bent upon entrapping him, bringing him to contradict himself, of course, which he never did, and they were never successful, but they never gave up. Many of them didn't, tragically. And yet it's ironic that something so negative with which this chapter begins quickly turns into something extremely positive and encouraging and reassuring as the Lord uses this occasion to speak a parable to them, not just one, but Three, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then finally the lost boy. And some separate the lost boy and add another, the elder brother, with which we will not deal today, but hopefully next time. We have already emphasized, as we have been emphasizing recently, the importance of bringing home the straying and of seeking the lost sheep and having compassion for them. We have stressed as a part of that the preciousness of one soul, yes, one, and how the Lord emphasized the value of that one precious soul. But there is perhaps no other part of the New Testament that brings attention and emphasis to that point as does the parable of the prodigal son as it is so regularly termed. It is unparalleled in terms of the love and compassion and the attitude of the God of heaven that is revealed toward that precious soul who has wandered from the fold of God. This parable has been called the pearl of parables and that in all literature it is unparalleled. And this morning I'd like for us to examine this beautiful and powerful and poignant parable. And let it paint for us the picture that obviously the Lord intended for it to paint. A picture of the deepest possible love and compassion that the God of heaven demonstrates for every precious child of his. And the desire that he has that those precious children who have wandered from him come home to him. The parable begins in verse 11 of the chapter. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And we need to stop here and realize that this parable has been prompted, as we have mentioned from the early part of the chapter, by the attitude that was manifested by the Pharisees and the scribes about Jesus eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And the three parables that followed demonstrate the need for the Son of Man, also the Son of God, to seek and to save those who are lost, and that it is not those who are well who need the physician, but those who are sick. And in this beautiful and poignant parable, 
the two sons obviously represent the two groups of people introduced to us in the first part of the chapter. The tax collectors and sinners on the one hand and the Pharisees and scribes on the other. The Pharisees and scribes are represented in the part of this chapter with which we will deal the Lord willing next time, and that is the attitude of the elder brother. Not a pretty picture at all, but one at which we definitely need to look and learn from and make sure that we at all costs avoid that attitude. But what about the first part of this parable and the first son, the younger of them? He comes to his father in verse 12 and says, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Here was a young man who couldn't wait for his father to die. He obviously had something in his mind in terms of where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do, and he needed the wherewithal financially to be able to do it. And so he said, I want it now. Give me. You know, that phrase, give me, is a problematic phrase if we think about it. And it is an attitude that is all too prevalent in the society in which we live today. And tragically, it is an attitude that is all too prevalent at times in many places in the Lord's church where there are those who are more interested in what the church can give them than what they can give to the church. And an emphasis on the social rather than the spiritual, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with socializing. We plan to do it next Lord's Day evening, don't we, in a Finger Foods Fellowship. But it is the spiritual and what the church gives to what we can give to the church that we need to be concerned about and what we can give to the kingdom, the kingdom and the church being one and the same. And the Lord admonished us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. What you can give, not the give me, but the what can I give attitude. And yet, the give me attitude is far too prevalent in the world in which we live today. And that's what I'm reminded of when I see this phrase here. Father, give me. What did he want? He wanted the portions of goods that falls to me, he said. And so, the father divided, notice this, to them his livelihood. He went ahead and settled, in effect, with the elder son and the younger son. According to Deuteronomy 21.17, the law of Moses would have uh, given the double portion to the older son. And so what the younger son was asking for was not as much as the elder son would receive. But obviously, based upon the situation at the time, he went ahead and, and took care of settling it. The elder, the elder son obviously decided to remain on the estate, as it were, and to, uh, to have what he had ultimately. But the younger son was ambitious and eager and impatient, and he wanted to go out into the world, as many times young people cannot wait to do and to fly the nest, to be on their own, and to be independent. And no doubt he had great dreams. And while we are not supplied with any effort on the part of the father to discourage this young man, we could assume that the father, if he's a right-thinking individual, would say, Son, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want this now? But he was determined. And in that determination and the reaction of the Father, who incidentally obviously represents the Father in heaven, 
we see the fact that when we're determined to do something and to go away from God, God is not going to force us to stay with Him. We're creatures of choice. We're created in the image of God, and part of that image is free will. And so when we are determined to exercise that free will, even if it is a way that is not best for us and not in harmony with the will of God, God is going to ultimately say, go ahead, because I'm not going to force you to stay. And so he divided to them his livelihood. Verse 13 says, and not many days after, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living, as the New King James renders it. Wasteful is the idea of prodigal, obviously. But notice in the first part of that verse, not many days after, first came the, the request. There was first the desire of the heart, the biblical heart. There was first that desire, and then ultimately the fulfillment, the carrying out of it. He waited a little while, we don't know how long. Maybe there was cattle, maybe there were sheep, maybe all of this had to be liquidated, sold in order for him to liquidate his funds and have the money he needed to make his far journey and to fulfill his so-called dreams. But generally, that's what happens when a person leaves God, leaves the Father. It first occurs in the heart with the desire, and then the hands, then the hands follow. The action comes afterwards. And that's what we read here. And he journeyed to a far country. It seems he wanted to get as far away from home for whatever reason as possible, but we are reminded that one doesn't have to go far from home to leave God. One can leave God and be right in the congregation in terms of presence, that's a possibility, isn't it? But this man geographically obviously went a great distance away and he squandered everything that his father had given him. Wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Think about what he turned his back on and what he got. It reminds me of Jeremiah 2.13 where God, through the prophet Jeremiah concerning the people of his day, said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Isn't that a sad, sad statement coming from God through the prophet? My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have exchanged that fountain of living waters for broken cisterns that can hold no water. Stagnant, leaking, broken cisterns. And that's the very exchange that this young man made. No doubt he had a good situation at home. No doubt he had a father who loved him, and we'll see that very vividly in the latter part of this beautiful, beautiful parable. And yet he wanted to make his mark in the world, I suppose. But when he had spent all, verse 14, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Let me tell you, there's always a famine. There's always a famine in that land. 
that land into which the young man went, the far country of sin. When one decides to leave God, the Father, and go into the far country of sin, there will always be famine. It may not be evident to the individual at the time, oh, it may be that that he is involved in all sorts of pleasurable activities, and we do not doubt that sin, as the book of Hebrews reminds us in reference to Moses, can be pleasurable, but it's also, we're reminded there, seasonal. Moses chose to suffer ill or shame with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, remember? And so for a season, everything was no doubt very pleasurable, but he was in a famine, whether he recognized it or not, even when he still had plenty of money. He was in famine because of what he had chosen to do and was doing in squandering all that he had, foolishly and lavishly. And he began to be in want. Let me ask you, do you think that when he left home that he had any idea he would be in this situation we find him in now at this juncture? No. And that's generally the case with those who leave their spiritual home, the Lord's church. It doesn't happen overnight as we have have mentioned before. It's not something that is made in terms of an announcement, someone who has been present at every assembly suddenly on this Sunday morning makes an announcement to the congregation, I, have, I haven't missed a service for years. I've been faithful in my attendance, but I want everyone to know here that tonight I will not be here and I won't be back. That does not happen, does it? But tonight some may not be back. And then Wednesday night, maybe not. Maybe next Sunday, maybe Sunday night. Maybe sporadically attending. And ultimately, as we mentioned before, before they realize that they're in that far country. That's how drifting, that's how drifting occurs, doesn't it? You know, Jerry Wright's a fisherman extraordinaire. And... uh, I know he can appreciate this illustration, but I, I like to fish. My late father-in-law, I think I've mentioned before, said, you didn't know if you liked to fish till you went fishing with Jim Dearman because he could sit out there all day long if you were catching nothing. And Janice's dad was not of that mindset. If they were biting, that's wonderful. If they're not, let's get out of here. Go home. <laughs> but you could just sit there and bang that bank with that lure thinking this will be the next this this next time that'll be it and I found a good spot and I'm right here on it and I'm just going to keep it before you know it unless you've put down an anchor you're 15 20 feet from where you thought you were and where you thought that good spot was you were fishing you drifted and didn't even didn't even realize it and unless we anchor our souls by faith to the word of God and to the Lord's church and labor lovingly and diligently to maintain that faith. Any of us can drift without the full realization that we've even moved. I dare say this young man had no idea when he left that he would be here. And even now, even now, as we read the words of verse 14, 
we read words that should have prompted him to say, I need to go home. I need to go home. But what does verse 15 reveal? Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. You see, still, the young man hasn't gotten it. He still doesn't get it. It still hasn't hit him as to the extent of his departure and his degradation into which he has fallen. And so now he basically becomes attached, strongly attached to a citizen of that country. And the word joined literally means he glued himself. He glued himself to a citizen of that country. What country? The far country. The far country of sin. And many times that's what happens. Those who've departed think, well, things may not be going as well as they should be, but I'm still going to hang in here with my friends who didn't hang in there with him at all, as we shall see. And so, he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Here's a Jewish boy. Swine, they couldn't eat them, they should not have been keeping them, couldn't keep them, couldn't eat them. It was prohibited by the law of Moses. And here's a young Jewish man who is now feeding the swine and desiring to be fed with those pods, as the New King James says, and that's a good translation, carob pods. Carob pods, which were edible, and they said don't taste all that bad, but it's basically swine food. But that's where he was at this point because no one gave him anything. Where were all the friends? Where were all those friends who were no doubt very eager to help him spend all of his substance, but when all of his substance was gone, they were too. They were too. But thankfully, there's verse 17, which begins, but when he came to himself. When he came to himself. And you know, that reminds us that anyone who is away from God is not himself. Have you ever thought about that? Anyone who's away from God and not serving God is really not himself. Why is that? Because every individual has been created in the image of God. There is an innate moral sense that every individual has. And every individual has to fight against the God who created that innate moral sense, thus fight against himself and the image in which he was created in order to be where this young man ultimately found himself. So anyone who has left God has left himself as God intended for himself to be. Because remember, God, plural, let us, the Godhead, make man in our image after our likeness. That's a moral image. That's a spiritual image. And anyone who has abandoned that spiritual likeness is really not himself and needs to come to himself. And thankfully, this young man did. And when he did, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. 
he began to think, I can think about my father's servants back home. They were well treated. They're servants, but they were well treated, and they have much better food to eat than I am eating here. And so he said, I will arise, verse 18, and go. I will arise and go. And aren't we glad that he didn't just think about his sorrowful situation and regret deeply that he had left home, but conclude, there's no way I can go home now. I don't dare show my face at home now after what I have done, after the demands I've made and the condition I'm in. No, I'll just do what Judas Iscariot did. With the sorrow of the world upon his shoulders, Judas Iscariot, after betraying the Lord, went out and hanged himself. He was sorry for what he had done, but it was the sorrow of the world. It was not godly sorrow. And it didn't lead him to repentance. But thankfully here what we have is an example of godly sorrow that as 2 Corinthians 7.10 points out, works or leads to repentance. And it was this kind of sorrow that caused this young man to determine to go home. And you know, it must indicate that he really knew something about his father to the extent that he thought at least, at least he'll be compassionate enough to make me one of his servants. So he said, here's what I'll do. I'll go and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now think about that. Every sin is against heaven. Had he sinned against his father? Yes. Remember what Joseph said when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him? He said, how can I do this thing and sin against God? Would it have been a sin against Potiphar in terms of taking his wife? Yes, but every sin is against God. And that's what we need to appreciate and fully understand, that we are sinning against God when we go against God. And he understood that. Heaven here would represent God, obviously, the God of heaven. And I've sinned before you. And he said, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now look at these next two words. Make me. Remember verse 12? Give me. Now verse Verse 19, I'll say to him, make me. Tremendous change has taken place. From the give me, give me, give me attitude to now just make me, make me one of your servants. He has truly been humbled by his experience. And so verse 20, he followed through. And he arose and came to his father. How do you think he was coming to his father? Running down the road, going faster as he got closer to home, thinking, I'm almost home? I doubt it. I doubt it. I imagine it was a pretty hesitant pace with nervousness increasing the closer he got, wondering how will he react. But then we read, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. Now, I don't know this for sure, but what that suggests to me is that his father perhaps had been looking down that road 
regularly ever since the day his young son left. Looking to see if perhaps today might be the day that I'll get a glimpse of him coming home. He was a great way off, and his father saw him and had compassion and what? And ran. Will God run? Yes. This passage says, yes, God will run. God will run to meet his wayward child who has repented and is coming home to him and fell on his neck and kissed him. In his book of sermons, entitled This Crooked Generation, the late V.P. Black, great gospel preacher, in a sermon entitled Some Surprises of the Prodigal Son, tells about a story he read of a young man very much like this prodigal son who had left home and was penniless, had brought shame to his family. No one would help him. He wanted to come home but he was so hesitant about the kind of reception he might receive, and so he decided to sit down and write his father a letter and to tell him how sorry he was and how much shame he knew he had brought upon the family, that he was not really worthy to wear the family name anymore, but he said, I want to come home, and here's what I would like for you to do. If I'm welcome, if you want me to come home, I'm going to be on that train that comes by the old home place. And if you want me to come home, if you'll hang a white cloth on one of the limbs of that tree, when I see that, I'll get off the train. But if I don't see it, I'll just keep going. And he was very nervous on that certain day that he had said he would be doing that and had told his father in the letter. And so he got on that train, and his nervousness was apparent to a gentleman who was sitting across the aisle and the gentleman inquired about how he might be able to help him, and the young man just poured his heart out to this, this fellow and told him everything about how he had lived, about the letter he'd written to his father, and why he was so nervous. And the gentleman said, well, why don't we just both watch so we'll make sure we don't miss it. And as the train rounded the curve and the tree came in sight, the gentleman turned to him and said, young man, there's a white cloth on every limb of that tree. There's a white cloth on every limb of that tree. Will God run? Yes. He'll run to meet his wayward child. And because that's true, shouldn't that tell us that we as God's people who haven't left God should do all that we can to bring those wayward children home to a God who will run to meet them. Absolutely. Fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But then we don't read the words, make me as one of your hired servants. The next thing we read is this, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Some have speculated, and it may be the case, that the father interrupted the son before the son could ever say, make me as one of your hired servants. That his exuberance and his jubilance over the son's return caused him to simply say what he said. Bring the best robe. Put it on him. Ring on his hand, indicating that authority and the sonship. I'm welcoming him home, not as a servant, but as a son. Put the sandals on his feet. The servants were most likely barefooted, but these sandals indicated he was not going to be a hired servant. He was going to be the son once again. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. The fatted calf. That was the best one in the stall. That was the one that was fattened and kept for very special occasions. Not just another one of the animals, but the fatted calf. And why the celebration? Well, why not when we read the words of verse 24? For my son, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's the condition of those who have left God. They are dead. Oh yes, living in body, but dead in spirit, tragically. Remember what God said to Adam and Eve, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree, this one tree, you shall not eat. And in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. In that day you will die. Physically, no. Ultimately, we all die physically as a consequence of that action. But in that day they died. Why? Because in that day sin separated them from God. And anyone who is separated from God by sin is dead while he or she lives. Why would we not rejoice over one who returns to us from that spiritual death and comes home to the God of heaven? Why wouldn't we make Mary? You know, we could wish this parable ends right here, but there's another part to it at which we'll look next week. And that deals with the tragic attitude of the elder brother. But what about you this morning as we close our thoughts? Where are you, hopefully, with God? Faithful to Him. But if not, whether you're in a situation where you once knew Him by obeying the gospel of Christ, believing in Jesus as the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing Him, and being baptized for the remission of sins, and having known the joy and the peace that comes from that forgiveness, being in Christ, being in His church, whether you have never done that or whether you've done that and you've wandered and need to come home, whatever your situation, if you are away from God as one who's never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ or one who has and has turned his or her back upon Him, What more incentive would you need for coming to God initially or coming home to Him than this unparalleled, beautiful text at which we've looked this morning? 
and the attitude that you know God has towards you if you need to come to him or come back to him. As we stand to sing, will you come?